Louder! Camera Exploitation, your guide to exploitive cinema. This is the pod boss, TJ Bowser, and joining me as always is my doppelganger, Kanga Banga, from down under, Mr. Brody Kane. Howdy doody, mateys. And the slickest of all of the Knicks, Mr. Slickman. What up? Today we have a doozy of an episode, but first, it's time for your slice of life. Brody, how goes it? Yep, it all goes well, as I say each week. Um, fucking flat out at work. Um, yeah, pretty, pretty wild week, actually, so... Oh, I'm just fucking overwork at the moment. It's good to... What'd you say your rate was the other day? 32 windows in one day? Yeah, so Damn. basically this little motherfucker went on a rampage and smashed this school up. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. And like, if you know me as well as TJ does, you know that I was not a happy camper. <laughs> Um, I was fucking furious. And while yeah. TJ was having a great time over in the States sending me Snapchats, <laughs> I was having a shit time getting fucking extremely furious. So, but other than that, other than the bullshit work this week, uh, Sister Sister from Bill Condon arrived this week. Uh, Vinegar Sadrome release. I am still yet to watch it. Um, I'll do that probably today. I also ordered Johnny Gotti's gun from Imprint Films. Fucking A. Yeah. Man. Do not know what that film is. Just go watch Metallica's one film clip. So it's one of the roughest war movies of all time. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I just like the whole concept of it. Um, I would potentially love to do a future episode of LCE on it because um, it just deals with some serious and um, imprints a premium games. label. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> it does not disappoint. No. Um, but other than that, not much else happening in my neck of the woods. How about you, Slick Nick? Not a ton. Uh, super, super busy at work, so I've mostly been tired and just like napping after work and just taking care of chores. Uh, I did have a beer yesterday for St. Patrick's Day while watching this, uh, and then promptly ate dinner and went to bed. Um, well, I watched Django Unchained, actually, after <laughs> after I finished Kiyoma yesterday. Uh, <laughs> then went to bed. But yeah, not, not a whole lot over here. It's been a uh, slow week aside from my day job. So uh, what about you, DJ? Well, I got some movies in from Arrow in Criterion. I got the Vengeance Trail set from Arrow Video. That is pretty fucking cool. And I got some Tarkovsky films from Criterion. Yes. I got Stalker, Mirror, and Solaris. Yes, yes, yes I do believe okay. you are correct. Okay. I think that's what I, I, I get it mixed up sometimes. One time I think I put Polaris, so now my head's all fucked up. It's like, oh. that, it's like that one time <laughs> I accidentally said Fincher instead of Lynch and I fucked myself in the head and second guess it every time. We're not going to mention <laughs> In the last episode, we, uh, we we won't, or two episodes ago, uh, which just dropped today. So if you're listening to uh, episode 32, you got mm -hmm. that joke. Uh, <laughs> 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 Stay after the song for even funnier bits. I promise you it's worth it. Brody goes off his fucking head. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. But yes, got a lot of movies in, watched a lot of movies. Oh, I also got stage straight from Blue Underground, but I edited this week's stuff Ooh. up. Uh, I'm working with Cameron Lee. I guess I'll announce it right here. I'm working with Cameron Lee on taking the script that Brody and I wrote last year and transforming it into comic book form. And we're going to start working on that. So maybe uh, later this year, you'll see some uh, images of that popping up. But yeah, just kind of get things moving, watching a ton of movies. Rewatched Dark Knight last night just to solidify how good it is in my uh, head. But yeah, I'm ready to talk about this week's film and this week's film is 1976's Kiyoma come on in you've been gone quite a while this time where you been fighting a war meet anybody faster than you not yet Shot Ben and Charlie without even turning around. 
Ain't no man can hit a target without looking at it. There are two men who can't. Well, Pa is one, and the other is... This land belongs to Mr. Caldwell, along with everything that's on it. You had to pay for the water, and now you gotta pay for the medicine. <laughs> I'll pay this time. How much are you willing to pay? Four cents. The price of four bullets. One, two, three, and four. I'm too tired of killing. I have to survive. And that is from director Enzo G. Castellari, who also did One Dollar Too Many in 1968, Cold Eyes of Fear in 1971, Street Law in 1974, and Warriors of the Wasteland in 1983. Writers Mino Roll, Nico Ducci, George Eastman, and Enzo G. Castellari. They wrote the screenplay, story by George Eastman, who went by the name Luigi Montefiore. Cinematographer Ice Perlin, who did The Climax in 1967, The Sicilian Connection in 1972, and Street People in 1976. Music by Guido DeAngelis and Maurizio DeAngelis, who did 1973's Torso, Zorro in 1975, and Iron Master in 1983. Art director Carlos Simi, who worked on A Fistful of Dollars in 1964, Revolver in 1973, and Once Upon a Time in America in 1984. You good, Brody? Yeah, no, I just went. Oh, okay. Oh. That movie rocks. James Wood's great. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> Set director. Set director, Carlo Gentili, who also worked on Hannibal in 1959, Hero of Rome in 1964, and California in 1977. Producers, Manolo Bolognini. Special effects, Giovanni Corridori, who worked on The Grand Duel in 1972, Contamination in 1979, and last season's film, Tenebre from 1982. Budget, we did not find one. Starring Franco Nero as Kiyoma Shannon. You may know him from other spaghetti westerns, such as Massacre Time in 1966, The Mercenary in 1968, Compañeros in 1970, and White Fang in 1973. William Berger as William Shannon, who starred in The Son of Zorro in 1973, Devilfish in 1984, and Django Strikes Again in 1987, the official sequel to Django 1966. Olga Carletos as Lisa Faro, who starred in This Is The Night in 1977, Zombie in 1979, and Purple Rain in 1984. Orsa Maria Guarini as Butch Shannon, who starred in The Conformist in 1970, Double Team in 1997, and The Born Identity in 2002. Gabriella Digicombe as The Witch, who starred in A Season in Hell in 1971, Anna, The Pleasure, The Torment in 1973, and Behind Covent Walls in 1978. She was in a lot of those non films. Brody and I had this discussion pre-show. Uh. We don't know if she was the one getting or not in the name of the lord <laughs> ah, right, right, yeah. gotta make sure it's holy <laughs> antonio marcina as lenny shannon who started in the rangers in 1970 colt 38 special squad in 1976 and christopher columbus in 1985 joshua sinclair as sam shannon who started no more time in 1973 the inglorious bastards in 1978 and 1990 the bronx warriors in 1982 donald o'brien as caldwell who starred in god is my cult 45 in 1972, A Man Called Blade in 1977, which is not a Kyoma ripoff, and Zombie Holocaust in 1980. Last, but definitely not leastly, Woody Strode as George, who starred in The Ten Commandments in 1956, The Professionals in 1966, and Winterhawk in 1975. And Winterhawk was the name of my martial arts instructor when I was growing up. Ah. Is the movie about him? (laughs) I wish. (laughs) After the American Civil War, half Indian Kioma returns to his border hometown after service in the Civil War and finds it under the control of Caldwell, an ex-Confederate soldier and his vicious gang of thugs. To make matters worse, Kioma's three half-brothers have joined forces with Caldwell and makes it painfully clear that his return is an unwelcome one. Determined to break Caldwell and his brother's grip on the town, Kioma partners with his father's former ranch hand to exact violent revenge. <laughs>
Yeah, this is uh, pretty cool. This is the first watch for all of you guys, right? Absolutely. Yes. yes. Awesome. Yeah, I watched this initially after I watched Django, which I believe mm. was a season two pick or season one? I think two. I don't think we had a Western until two. But yeah, I watched it probably a week after I watched Django and it, I was like, wow. And that 10 years time, Nero really stepped things up as far as just his overall abilities. Just wow. Connect. He oh, yeah. And the cool thing about this film, is we'll talk about it, is he uh, actually voiced the American dub. So. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We talked about that a little bit uh, pre-show, but yeah. So, award! Nothing! Couldn't find shit! Unfortunately. Shoulda, coulda, woulda. I mean, it's it's uh, Castellari's favorite movie, isn't it? That he's done? That That's what I've read. It's I think it's just, it came out at the end of the Western cycle in Italy, so it probably didn't get the recognition that it deserved coming at what is referenced as the twilight of the genre. Mm. Yeah, that's fair. If it was on its way out, I can see they'd probably have already started moving on to giving the awards to other stuff. I think we've talked about that in, uh, about slasher films and some of the more unappreciated films like that. That's it's if those mm-hmm. films come out later in the cycle, they just tend to be overlooked. It, it's just part of the the business, I guess. Boys, let's get physical. <laughs> So this week's release is from Arrow Video. It was dropped April 16th, 2019, and it runs 101 minutes in rated R. Features a new 2K restoration from the original 35mm camera negative, and it is gorgeous. I showed Brody some uh, footage this morning. Looks pretty damn good, doesn't it, dude? Oh, yeah, no bad, no bad at all. Hmm. Uncompressed mono 1.0 LPCM audio. Nick, you probably watched it via stream on the Arrow app, correct? I did, yes. Yeah, so you probably would have watched the same scan as me. Original English and Italian soundtracks, titles and credits, newly translated English subtitles for the Italian soundtrack, optional English subtitles for the deaf and hard of hearing, new audio commentary by Spaghetti Western expert C. Courtney Joyner and Henry C. Park. C. Courtney Joyner knows his shit. The Ballad of Kyoma, a new interview with the legendary star Franco Nero. Ashes to Ashes, Dust to Dust, a new interview with director Enzo G. Castellari. Writing Kyoma, a new interview with actor and writer George Eastman. Parallel Actions, a new interview with editor Gianfranco Amacucci. The Flying Thug, a new interview with actor Massimo Vanni. Play as an actor, an interview with Volfango Soldati. Kyoma in the Twilight of the Spaghetti Western, a newly filmed video appreciation by the academic author Austin Fisher. That was what I was referencing earlier. Yeah. An introduction to Kyoma by Alex Cox, an archival featurette with the acclaimed director. Original Italian and international theatrical trailers, gallery of original promotional images from Mike Segal Archive, and a reversible sleeve featuring newly commissioned artwork by Sean Phillips. Pretty good shit. Boys, what'd you find out? So, uh, I found an interview uh, with Screen Anarchy uh, Castellari, speaking about the editing process uh, for the film, um, and just kind of him in general. It says, first of all, uh, I'm editing every night I can. When I'm not shooting at night, I'm in the editing room. Uh, I try to edit my movie night by night. When I'm editing the movie, I need the music uh, and its energy. The help that the music gives to the story is very, very important. And I was using the record of musicians from other movies and their scores. I also use certain kinds of different music for whatever I think works best for the scene. Then when the music is perfect for my editing, my atmosphere and my feelings, then my musician can have the score made based on the music I've already used. He also goes on to specify the use of music and writing in Kioma with, in one of my movies that I like the most, the Western Kioma, I used the Bob Dylan and Leonard Cohen songs for the whole movie. I took from the records of Cohen and Dylan and at the end of The Musicians, the Angelus brothers just followed that and did the same. It was a big success at the time. They said, oh, the music? It was Leonard Cohen. It was Bob Dylan, just in the Italian way. Music is so important to me. When I'm shooting, I'm thinking of what music to put in the scene. There could be a moment that is very quiet where I need silence and then music, music, music. I need the music to help tell the story. So uh, the initial script for the film uh, was actually done by two writers that had never worked in the spaghetti Western genre before. Uh, Mino Rolli and Nico Ducci had arrived several days after production began, uh, actually. Uh, the original script uh, ended up not being well received by Castellari and got thrown out. Uh, because of problems with the schedule then, Castellari and actor Joshua Sinclair wrote the script for the next day, every evening after <laughs> like the filming of the 
the day before. Uh, they were open to suggestions from the rest of the cast and crew, and Franco Nero later confirmed that he had actually written some of his own dialogue because of that. Very nice. So the shooting of the production took place over eight weeks with most of the principal photography being shot at Eliol Studios in Rome on the same sets that were previously used by Sergio Cabucci for Django. As the story of Kiyoma reportedly was originally intended to be a sequel to the film, by the time Kiyoma was being filmed, the set was in need to, of repair, which made it easier for Castellari to film as they did not have to redress the sets. Well, uh, side so note, uh, Brody, the Donnie Darko set is two 4K discs. Yeah, I'm not getting that then. Yeah. D- just to be fuck. clear. Fuck. I was just double checking for you. <laughs> yeah, cheers, <Damn>. buddy. Cheers. <laughs> Looking out for me. I like it. Looking out for me. Yeah. Fucking good on you. So uh, I also found an interview with Flashback Files uh, with actor Franco Nero, uh, in which he describes how he came to work on Kioma. Uh, he says, I was in Munich doing an American movie called 21 Hours to Munich about ah. the terrorist attack on the Jewish athletes uh, during the Olympic Games in 72. One day during filming, Enzo calls me. Uh, he wants to come see me with producer Manolo Bolognini. Uh, they he came over and told me that they wanted to do a Western called Kioma. I asked about the script. Enzo said, we have a script, but we don't like it. Uh, we do it like <laughs> we always did. Just make a Western. William Holden, who was next to us, heard us talking about Westerns and said, if you're making a Western, I'd like to be in it. We had a part for him, too. He was going to play my father. But then after we did 21 Hours to Munich, Holden immediately flew back to the United States and we started filming Kioma right away. So in the end, we used William Berger for that role. Okay, trivia time, boys. Manolo Bolognini produced what? other film that we have reviewed. I'm guessing it's a fucking Jello film. Is it Crystal and Plumage? The Possessed. Ah, damn it. I was like, it's remember? It's either The Possessed or Crystal Plumage. I can't. He, <laughs> he had a similar meeting in that film to get that made. Oh, man. He's really good at just lucking out with those meetings. But The Possessed was, <laughs> the possessed was his first film. Okay. And then he did Django the year after. And then he did Django Prepare Your Coffin. And then uh, he did this one. Yeah. And then Kioma. Okay. Yeah, he did a, a fuck ton of movies. Like the guy literally, like everything is Franco Nero that he did. Like literally, I can see like at least 12 films with Franco Nero in them that he's worked on. Fucking hell. There's bugs. Homies. Yeah. <laughs> you want some work for the next 20 years? <laughs> <laughs> it's like the, oh, fuck, what movie is that in? The damn Adam. Is that Adam Sandler? It's my new movie. All right. What role does? Uh, James play. Shut up. <laughs> He's a security guard. <laughs> Nick, take it away. Uh, I just, I'll take it away. Oh, it wasn't? Okay, it's pretty. <laughs> Nero gets into the symbolism with Kioma. Yes, we wanted to make it an allegory. We had something in mind at the time. What it was supposed to mean, the witch was death and the pregnant woman was life. I don't remember it exactly. We put some Shakespeare into it. It all came together and I think it worked very well. In America, they always thought it was a masterpiece. Franco goes on to talk about his work with director Enzo Castellari. I says, I always had this great relationship in work, talking about work, and he knew exactly what I wanted. Uh, let's say we had to do this scene the next day, but nothing was written. And then he'd say, well, what do you reckon, Franco? We could do a scene like this or this. But I was like, yeah, but we need to tie in the dialogue. I was working through the night to write lines, as we stated earlier, actually. <laughs> um, so yes, we have Franco talking about John Lafredo. So Enzo was very open with the actors he likes suggestions because you know not only with me but for instance with Johnny Lafredo I remember Johnny used to write beautifully in English and when he had to do this speech to the village it felt like a Julius Caesar moment because in this movie there's also a lot of Shakespeare and Johnny wrote the dialogue himself we were very happy with what he wrote and then goes on to further discuss uh, his relationship with Enzo says Enzo always liked a risk in a way in all our nine to ten movies we did together, we always wanted a challenge. I think that I am the right actor for him because I push him to do a great job. And this relationship with the director is fantastic. I'm not a homosexual, but if we were homosexual, we would be lovers. In yes! <laughs> <laughs> because we other uh, we understand each other in one second. I don't think this beautiful relationship will ever end. I love the way he describes things. It is always something like that. It's, it's fucking awesome. <laughs> I love that, man. <laughs> so we have Franco talking about uh, working on the set of the film. But wait, what's we got here? So we have Franco talking about 
working with the dust on this film. It's quite random. But anyway, we he goes on to state, we always wanted to do the movie with this wind and dust. We suffered a lot to do this movie and it was not an easy movie to make because of the wind and dust. But we were so happy to do the movie. It had to be hard to breathe in that <laughs> studio. Man, it's gonna like, look that's cool. the thing. This is it's in a studio <laughs> in Rome. So like they're pumping all of this like dust and stuff in and blowing it around with <laughs> that had to suck. Uh, so Franco goes on uh, to talk about the music. He says, generally with Enzo, he knows I like music. So I really know the music in films. And Enzo used to work all the time with the two brothers, Guido and Maurizio De Angelis. And so when I met them, they were very nice. Uh, I kept telling them, wait, I know exactly what kind of music we have to put into this movie. I said, I want an accordion. That's it. And then just immediately. So Franco, I'm praising Woody Strode. Woody was an incredible person and he was the sweetest person I had met in my life. Enzo saw him one day at the beach and saw the way he was running and shooting the bow and arrow. Enzo was like a child. He goes incredibly enthusiastic and goes, I got Woody Strode. Especially when he worked with us, we gave him importance. The way we were shooting movies in Italy is is that we are all on the same level. In America, there's the big star that needs his caravan, but here, no. We need to be good friends. All together, we are working for one product, so we must be exactly the same. Therefore, Woody felt fantastic. He then goes on to talk about his favorite scene in the movie. He says, I like the moment that they shot my dad in the movie. I remember that very well because I was on top of the tower and I saw from that point that my father was caught. They yell at me to come down. I come down, look at my father and they shoot him. And in that same moment, they put another camera on me. It's such an incredible scene. Mm -hmm. So we last but not least, we have Franco paying tribute to a friend. At the end of the movie, I copied a few lines from one of my best friends. His name is Claire Hoffak. He wrote a great book called Cowboy and the Kozak that I had been dying to do for many years. In that book, there's a great line and I couldn't help it. I had to get that line from the book and put it in the film. The line is, it can't die. And you know why? Because it's free. And a man who is free never dies. Well, boys, let's talk about it. <laughs> Okay, so favorite performance of the film Brody Kane taketh awayeth. Well, how can I not say Mr. Franco himself? Right. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I knew this one was going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking I mean, about what, this while I was driving home. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's a tough one because there's so many fucking um, standouts in this film from unknown actors, even mm -hmm. that I've never even fucking heard about. But like me and TJ were talking about before the show, like in that ten year span of him doing Django to this, he is just up the ante with his fucking mm -hmm. act. Mm -hmm. Even even like um, having a bit of a minor role, you could say in like with the oh, not not so much writing the screenplay, but just sort of dealing with his own character and bringing mm -hmm. what he can to the table in that sense. I mean, I could sit here all day and see how fucking good he is in this film, but um, the one thing that I probably love about him the most is you know that he can say words with expressions yes. on his face, like without saying a goddamn fucking word, and just the physicality of him to play such well a physical character is absolutely fun to watch he just gives it all 110 percent throwing his fucking body around um yeah i mean yeah i can't praise this man enough for this film i think he was the fucking absolute standout it was incredible to see but you slick nick i mean yeah it, it's got to be franco he definitely has the most just screen presence uh i mean like even when it's just him on a horse in the background of a shot to like loom over like the bad guys uh shooting the uh, dude running away with their carting off all the plague uh, victims um, and it's just him up like it just immediately grabs your attention and just holds it and it doesn't like he just he doesn't let go for the entire movie um, Olga Carlotos as Liza I did also like as well um, I just her character kind of stayed interesting mm -hmm. I think at least throughout the uh, the course of the film um, I didn't care much for Caldwell as a villain I liked her more than honor. the girl in Django yes she seemed it, like less of an inconvenience it seemed like it mattered more that she was there <laughs> yes yeah but they uh but to call shades to Django and like well to say similarities to Django mm. both
both scenes is where Django's coming home and he finds this lady getting attacked by this group of men and he then fires from an unknown location and saves her and goes down. Yeah. You know, it's just like, yeah. Uh, parallels, <laughs> man. I about to say, it almost feels like a callback to it a little bit. It has to I be. Mean, oh, oh, yeah. No, I mean, if they were writing the script, you know, like the day before, like each film, like they're writing the script. Well, we said it. Like we said it earlier then, when Bolognini goes, it's a Western. Yeah. <laughs> he goes, well, how are we going to do it? And he goes, well, like a Western. <laughs> Obviously. The same how, way we what, did what Django. Exactly. <laughs> but like, it works and it feels good. Like you yeah. see that and you go, ah, like it's, it's a nice little callback. Uh, it's enjoyable. But yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. It's got to, it's got to be Franco for me as well. TJ, are you differing in opinion at all on this? No. My man, okay. Franco, I think I've stated on, <laughs> on many occasions that that man of all of the Italian actors in Italian cinema, Franco Nero is just forever stand out to me and if, if i was a gay man in the 60s i would be frothing at the mouth for this guy uh he, <laughs> he is one handsome son of a bitch and i'll tell you what those blue eyes i could stare at for days mm. anyway anyway enough of that down boy down uh <laughs> <laughs> George. George is awesome. And his interactions oh, yeah. with Franco are so fun to watch. And they're heartfelt. Say that again. Say it again. George. He's like, yes. Because he's <sighs> somebody's saying his name and he's not calling him something terrible. And it's just that interaction is just so cool. And I know Brody has a problem with the way George sells his death because it's so fucking absurd. It's over the top. <laughs> it's very much over the top. I, I don't have a problem. I just wanted to Noted it because I was laughing at it. <laughs> I, I was kind of laughing at it too. Okay, while that's I was fair. The movie. I'm not it's gonna like, lie. It's badass, but it's fucking hilarious. <laughs> it it's like Django Unchained, the the final shootout scene at Candyland, uh -huh. uh, and that the lawyer that keeps getting hit whenever he's laying in like the foyer while they're shooting at everyone else, and he's screaming, just <laughs> hey, shot on the ground. <laughs> we know, yes. we know Tarantino. That could actually be a reference to this for all we fucking know. Oh yeah, no, I'm yeah. almost positive. <laughs> it's a hundred percent. Fucking a. Yeah, Nero all the way. It just you can feel his struggle. And spoiler alerts when he gets pseudo cross crucified in front of the town mm -hmm. and he's just sitting there you can feel that man's pain and agony just like i am defeated and i have to sit here and just fucking think about it and it's just rough and it's just like brody said he is so emotive and the way he just displays his facial expressions and his body language, it just, it, he is just waves beyond and so talented, just anybody else that he interacts with. Uh, but again, uh, that the tall brother, the one that looks like Jim Croce, I think that's pretty cool too. He's, he's, oh, he's he pretty fucking does. Does. <laughs> I was trying to think who the fuck's dead. No, that's spot on. He's pretty I good too. The name. <laughs> I had a, in my head, it was. Down the highway. <laughs> it was a Peter Fonda lookalike, a Donald Sutherland look alike <laughs> and a jim croce <laughs> and, and jim croce <laughs> yeah I, I i just liked him of all the brothers i just think he stood out of all of them i don't know fucking why is he the one who gets the uh the wood to the no spine? no no that's the pretty boy that goes upstairs that's the peter funda okay that's yeah. the peter funda look like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes that's about all i can say about performance because we can sit here and just suck frank O'Neill's all day but that that's for another podcast uh set piece boys the town the town just like in Django, is awesome and the gross pretty great <laughs> and grimy and it's just... not mud heavy it's not mud heavy like Django. No. it's dust heavy and i love it it's <laughs> calling back to the the bit earlier he's talking yes. about pumping all the you know it's dry the dust and the wind i mean Django started with a what like a peat bog so <laughs> listen to this so if you think about it in the sense that Django's the start or like early on in the in the cycle of westerns and then Kyoma's at the end things were really moist at the beginning and then they dried out at the end mm -hmm. it's like Brody's sex life oh. <laughs> story of my life <laughs> fucking A Sorry, buddy. No, nah, but the, but no, nah, but the cool thing about um this town is like I like how they took time to spend at least the last half an hour of this film just like ex like exploring the yeah. town in the sense of like a murder spree. Like yeah. you get to experience the back part of it, the front, all mm -hmm. everywhere, everywhere, and then like obviously that cool shot where he's fighting his brothers. They go through the fence. 
and then you get that dolly track from right to left and it, it the shows tower. the other side of what's on the fence. Yeah, The tower it, is cool. also great. The tower is so yeah. fucking good. How many times in video games have you had that like same fucking situation where you're getting chased up a fucking tower and now you're shooting down? There's I, several in Red Dead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and Red Dead 2. Like, in both games. I was just playing uh, Gunslinger the other day. The uh, what is that? Is that a Red Dead game? Um, Gunslinger. I don't think it, the it's Red Dead Revolver, Red Dead Redemption, and then Red Dead Redemption Two. I think. Well, I have a thing. Uh, I think that's what it's called. It's I don't know. It's a Western game, but it's like that. But yeah, I the tower. How can you like the tower's so cool? The tower is great. I also liked the uh, like dilapidated warehouse almost like barn type building i i don't believe it's the same one when he gets chased in by the guy who for some reason brings his whole goddamn horse into the building uh whenever he like ambushes him and then later he fights his brothers in there some I dudes think- bring their motorcycles it's in their kitchen like i, I guess some dudes bring their horses in their warehouse you know <laughs> it was just such a tight someone. hallway he was like <laughs> You know somebody that does the motorcycle thing, Brady? Yep, he's okay. got three Harleys in his house. They're like a fucking showpiece. Yep. Damn. It's actually pretty cool. Yeah. Well, Harley's <laughs> not a living animal. I <laughs> Giant 2,000-pound. <laughs> That's my horse. <laughs> he hangs out in the living room sometimes. <laughs> yeah, set piece. Yeah, we. I guess we all agree on town, and it's just it's cool. It's so fucking cool. I do like the uh, the gully, like the the gully they go through. Like they they keep going through it in order to get George past the. Uh, oh yeah, the guards and this, like just all those shots, those wide shots of Kioma going through the landscape, and then that gully with the dock and stuff is just so cool. I, I like that just as a as a side favorite scene or shot, boys. This is a hard one because this movie is uh, exquisite with the cinematography. Because it was it was. Like- like the more modern cinematography style, but like per- with a sixties. Personally, it, just- scene for me, I think what, what's hard to watch is the dragging followed up by the crucifixion. Yeah, yeah I thought it was going to get a lot worse. I thought they were doing the like, uh, what's it called? It's like broken on the wheel or something. It's an old like British one. They tie you to a wagon wheel and basically break your limbs. So what? What is that called? Is that is this a, that another form of crucifixion? Kinda. Okay. It, it definitely had religious vibes about that scene. Well, yeah. yeah. Well, there. the way Kiyoma looks. Looks. The way he was hanging, and then the way he was displayed in front of a crowd of people. It's just the parallels there are just too not, you know. But he's also well, fighting for a purpose. For the same yeah. way as Jesus, he has a purpose, and he fully believes in that purpose, and that's why he's doing this. Yes. Yeah. No interesting stuff. It, yeah. I mean, it's when you really like get to thinking about what has to be going through his head as well while he's up there. His own brother is standing there blaming him for the death of his dad, who was fighting with him against his brother in full view of the town not moments before and even though like, he said right, he wouldn't do that and then he asked yeah. kiyoma to do it he still fucking showed up and did it and got himself killed it's it's rough like i can see why even franco nero really likes that scene though like mm-hmm. i can absolutely understand why he's like that's my favorite that has to be my favorite, favorite shot though mine is either on the that... wheel. yeah not yeah but, that... but i like when he's up on the wheel but but also the shot wherever he has his dad in the on his like in the in the middle of the street and then it pans and then he's up in the fucking tower and he then he's like yeah. Looking down at him, so he like mm-hmm. you have to feel like what what we're seeing as well because you see his face in it. His dad's like, "Don't give yourself up" yeah. and everything, like yelling at him to. Well, I, I I had that as my favorite scene because you see Kiyoma, he suddenly transforms from a deadly kill- killer to this worried fucking soldier. Yes, and yes. Mm-hmm. It's a great transition to see, especially when Franco brings that to the table and it succeeds. Like it's just that it's just emotional, and you feel that change of beat in the scene. True that. And it just, but no, like. Yeah, that, and I also had favorite shot would be the reveal of, uh, you know, Kiyoma tied to the wheel. Uh-huh. Um, I just love that low dolly. It's like a low dolly, I guess you could say, backing track shot to reveal mm-hmm. this wide shot um, of Kiyoma and the townsfolk. It's just, it's so, he's like so towering. It's, yeah, I don't know. There's something about that scene that just looks pure fucking cinema to me. Fuck it. It's just pulled off well. So I think, I think for mine, I'm actually probably going to have to go with the, the, final fight with his brothers uh-huh. in the warehouse with the like tension building that they are like setting up with it reveals one brother is hiding behind this wall waiting for like Kiyoma to walk through and then just and I think it's also leading into my favorite shot the brother on the floor above him so taking sick. aim at the back of his head because <laughs> he can see he can see him through the gap in the yeah. floorboards and he aims at it and then has to like 
stop whenever he moves to the side and then that ends up getting him killed like just the tension building in that is so good and the whole scene from start to finish i feel like staging that sequence would have been so fucking difficult trying to make sure you can see him everybody's in the right position yeah the framing and blocking (laughs) for it is fantastic because (laughs) kiyoma also has to turn and look that is true <laughs> it's just that Man, whole, had to have been a pain in the ass. Like, the, yeah. the whole thing is just so cool. Oh, I love it. Yeah, you're I, right, man. That is so bad. I forgot about that. It's, it's just a really good shot. Uh, props though to the opening transition of uh, he, him seeing the witch or whatever. And that, yeah, any oh, shot remember the transition to the burning village from when he was a kid was yeah. Any mint. shot where they blur time is just so fucking well done because you never truly know what's actually going on or not. Uh, favorite mm-hmm. effect or death, guys? Other than the brother falling through the fucking second story and getting stabbed in the back. That was probably mine. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie, that was actually my... I was, uh, when he when he did the turnaround to have the whole... Because you get the foreshadowing of it as well. Whenever he notices that his brother's up there, you mm-hmm. see the bit dangling from the like ceiling before it comes crashing through, and you just get that lingering shot there for a second and it's like hey this uh this hanging stick might be a little important in a minute <laughs> before he just comes through and then does the whole like turn and the big dramatic and the and the collapse and everything uh yeah i mean that's probably my favorite death at least brody um, brody yeah um yeah i'm i'm gonna probably uh this might sound like i've got a little bit of a dark sense of humor over here but i'm gonna have to go with woody's death only because it felt heroic. It was pretty fucking badass that he was able to get shot like about six fucking times and still try and strangle someone to death. True that. Even yeah, though it did feel comedic, that was it was pretty badass. <laughs> um, I mean, there was a, there was a lot of gunshot deaths in this film. I mean, it was really hard to fucking choose other than. But I just wanted to say Woody's because it to add that little twist on it that he was actually heroic mm-hmm. and he was badass going out at the end. So um, rest in peace, Woody. Fucking yeah. A. I felt so bad when uh, Kioma's dad, William, turns back. He's like, George, no! (laughs) Favorite effect. I love when that guy uh, gets blasted at the beginning with a shotgun and all the fucking blood pours out of him from all the different holes. Oh, yes. That's a pretty good one. That's that's just so well done. Yeah. Fuck, I forgot about that. <laughs> I man, I did too, I can't actually. Get back on, I can't get back <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> Kyoba just, like, has that fucking shotgun right there. And he's, like, Fuck. just waiting. And just, bam, the fucking was, was flying off his horse. Yeah. And the, but the, before it does, so... all the blood just pours out of him. It's just, yeah, it's, just, mm. it's so good. Uh, Death, the brothers at the end are just so impactful. And it's just, it's a good way to end the film is to have everything tie up. It's cool. It's cool shit. And like I said, the staging of that must be hell, but it just, it, it all leads to just a really fun scene. I really dig it. Uh, George's death again, it's just super memorable because of the way he sells it. He sells it like a goddamn wrestling move and it's, 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 it's dope. It's great. Dope. <laughs> so that will transition into our thoughts on story. And we kind of been talking about it throughout our little review here. I love the way that this film addresses or ties in some of that, like, I would say love, but like, I like how it takes the racist parts of, westerns and they make it have a purpose and give it reason with the characters of to their actions you know what i mean Is it, oh absolutely yeah them having the discussion about the civil war like and when they're yeah i think it's george or is it george that he's talking about or i think it's maybe William are you gonna reference the que- the question where george was like am i really even free it, it kind of ties into that yeah. i think it was him talking with his father though um because he was like we went to go kill the indians yeah and then we felt bad about it so then we freed the black man so that we could go back to killing the indians yeah and like they're both just having that candid conversation about it because i mean kioma's back from fighting for the union and then and of course brothers are working with a confederate the constant dickhead. disapproval from kioma's brother because he's half indian himself that the, the quote half breed comments throughout the entire film and a question was the black hooded figure supposed to be kkk because i know that in previous films it didn't fucking matter what color the hoods were that it's just implied that that's what they were supposed to be if it's first like, generation yeah. restoration like immediately following i think so yeah okay I, I i just wasn't sure brody you were gonna say something oh no i was just gonna say yeah that was that that was the first impression that i got when i saw that oh, i was okay. like i said we're dealing with this now but um, everybody gets their comeuppance at the end the film 
wraps it up and it's just the way that they tell the story and, and show trauma in this film is just so impactful and so well done and we talked about like the way they reference time so they'll have times where Kyomo will look at something and it will trigger a memory and then he will see it in real time and then somebody from hit from from his time like current day will interrupt that and then bring him back to reality and I think that that's just a unique way that Castellari tells his story and gives you exposition and Brody and I talked about this pre-show as well the way that they use the witch character on it Mm -hmm. whether she is real or not Brody brought up the point that he leaves the baby with the witch at the end so she yeah, has to be I real that too i because of that fact so yeah totally that but there's points in it where is it only him interacting with her and is he the only one that can see her it makes me question that at certain times that just, i don't think anyone else interacts with her at all it's that, just him. exactly and brody said something brody talk about that thing you said well there's that shot where he's in the main street and he's about to actually like shoot those motherfuckers at the other end but then he pans to the right and he sees in between two buildings Buildings, the witch lady pushing oh. uh, like a wooden cart yeah. and it's kind of like it's this ghostly figure to rem- keep reminding him about you know who he is or what whatever it is that he keeps seeing but then i was like saying at the end of the film that she has to well she kind of has to be real because there's no way that he would go through all this story with a pregnant woman and then just to leave the baby <laughs> there with no yeah. one for it to die so it's kind of like she had to be real because he leaves it with her. But that's the that thing. Sense. And like Franco it's, says it's, in the interview that she's supposed to be representative of death yeah. as well. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's an odd situation. Maybe, yeah. Maybe that's like that image of her holding the baby is meant to be like a, um, like a meaning of life and death. Maybe that's just true adaptation. Right. Cause I mean, uh, was it Liza does die in uh-huh. the process? Yes. Symbolism, dude. So, so maybe the witch took, well, to like the witch was there to get to be there as death for her death, but then she's brought life into this world. So it's this right. image of life and death. And I guess Kiyoma's in between. He's uh-huh. the living, uh, I don't know, on his way to becoming death. I, I don't know. There's just so much meaning behind that it, to me. It's kind of funny because, so that he's so like distant from it Kiyoma uh, when they were writing it they originally thought or I think it was Bolanini thought that it translated to freedom but mm. it actually translates to far away mm, yeah. interesting mm. <laughs> but, it, but it is it is fun to see how they play with that in the storytelling like throughout the whole film you know yeah like TJ said, you go on this journey, you believe that she's not real, it's all in his head. Mm-hmm. It's the way they shoot it. I think it's, I think it's awesome because it leaves it up to us as the viewer to, you know, see how we interpret it. I like that. I, I think it, it adds another layer to this film to make it more enjoyable. It's- Absolutely. Yeah, it's tastier on the palate. It's more complex than your average Western. Yeah. It's exquisite. It's exquisite. It is good. Just Boys ready good. to talk about impact? takeaways yes sure thing uh unless nick has anything about story i i really kind of okay gave yeah most most of mine impact and takeaways so i've probably of all of us have watched more of this genre specifically uh just because of my innate obsession with italian cinema of most of the westerns i've watched this one stands out especially coming later in the cycle and i think it's because of the things that we've mentioned in this episode so far the fact that it's layered that it has these tropes of the genre that gives it purpose nero in a very well executed role we have a very competent director at the helm and a loaded cast it's it's great shit and i just think that it, it has a message the the movie has a message and it tells that message and leaves you with that message and that is that freedom is important and that you can't achieve it without some form of sacrifice and like the film says it can't die and you know why because it's free and the man who is free never dies and that's why he leaves the baby because he himself is not free if he has that fucking baby then he's tied to the baby (laughs) (laughs) he's settled with his kid now yeah even though his dad took him in when he was a little (laughs) wait (laughs) but he wasn't free he was then a slave to his brother's harassments and torture and And then kicking the crap out of him all the time yeah it's it's just the vicious cycle and i think the, the fact that this film addresses that sort those sorts of things allows it to stand out and allows us to talk about it so much years
years after its release. Brody, Nick? Um, yeah, I, I agree with you 110% there. And I, I like how they really, the story focuses on the themes and undertones of the film. They do not wash over it at all. They really elaborate in the storytelling with characters. And that makes it all the more interesting when you've got these characters um, and you're dealing with these tones of the film. They really deliver in that sense. Um, just especially like you, they, it, it really pushes you to root for Kiyoma and succeed in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and and for the fact that his own half brothers can't even accept him for who he is, and and you see the father fatherly love between the two, it's just really it's powerful fucking shit, and mm-hmm. it's a hard pill to swallow at times. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I I think they really really explain the story like they they know exactly what they want with the tones and themes. They explain it in a way that really resonates with people. Um, and by the end of the film, you go away with a lot, and it leaves you questioning your own morals in life after the film ends. I well, it did with me anyway. I find so. I don't know. It's it's just a really powerful film for what it is. Like a lot of people probably think it's just a spaghetti western. Is fucking much more than that. Um, Fucking oh yeah. It it just it definitely feels like Castellari. You know, he's picked up a lot from the genre over Mm -hmm. this ten years before Django and everything. He did a good bit of stuff. Oh yeah, And, and so like it really feels like the culmination of the western almost i mean it's That's twilight western era yeah. it's the everything has been crescendoing up to this point and it's learned from all of the past mistakes and triumphs from the genre and it's just combined them into this one neatly packed story and it drives that story home relentlessly and doesn't stop and it just feels like a farewell love letter almost like to the genre as a whole and i like it i think it definitely did well enough that i mean like we said earlier even if it was just kind of like almost a joke but it, it i don't I think django unchained definitely would have been made considering it was based on django but i don't know if it could have been as good on without kiyoma coming out first and influencing it and probably also you know tombstone in the 80s um deadwood like the hbo show and everything that came out in the 2000s or so like you can definitely see influences from kiyoma in those shows and given that this is my first time watching it, a lot of stuff was just like oh that, that's like hateful eight django unchained uh scenes from deadwood bits from tombstone just stuff like that it just it does it feels like a culmination of the genre it went out in the 70s it just kind of went underground a little bit because i mean that you know those others still came out and everything afterwards but so it never really went away this is just i think it's almost its peak that's fair yeah i'd say modern westerns are definitely nowhere near what they used to be and if they do they definitely try to go for a more gritty approach on things Mm -hmm. and then rely on that to get their their point across and i don't think that's necessarily the way to do it yet it's important to have those moments in western films but uh, i just think that most people just associate this brutality and of course the indian stuff gets brought into it a lot and it it gets a bad name with it because some films address it in in a bad way Uh, i watched a lot of these films growing up and recently and it's it's a harsh reminder that times have changed and people have really have come a far way on how they see things and their perspective of things but i will say i'm interested to see how killers of the flower moon the uh, martin scorsese Mm -hmm. leonardo dicaprio western that's coming up i'm really interested to see how that's going to turn out because those are people that know their cinema and especially scorsese so it should definitely be more referential to the days of old westerns instead of yeah i don't know i i like that stuff Uh, i hope for the best on anything else that comes out Mm -hmm. but yeah I mean, he was making movies around the time Kiyoma came out, so like, mm-hmm. uh, maybe he might he might bring it back. The last really Western type film I, I really enjoyed was Django Unchained, but again, Tarantino loves the same shit I do. So exactly, I liked Hateful Eight. I probably liked Hateful Eight more than most people See, liked Hateful Eight. I, <laughs> I feel like a lot of people didn't really like it that much. I thought it was a good movie. I have like, to give it I a rewatch. I don't think that I gave it a fair chance the first time I watched it, and I think that if I watched the extended version, maybe. I'll I'll uh, appreciate mm. it even more. I don't know. That's fair. It does. It does kind of drag a little bit at times. I mean, like it just the pace slows down, but it doesn't. There's spots where because normally Tarantino pace slows down. You get a bunch of Tarantino dialogue, so it doesn't feel like it. it but yeah, but this, he usually breaks it up with uh, violence. He usually breaks up those moments with violence. Right. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, this film. Let's rate this week's film. And this week's rating is Crucified, Rugged, Handsome Gunfighters with Fratricidal Tendencies out of five. Nick. 
What you got? 3.8. 3.8. Brody, what do you got? We'll go 3.5. And I have a score of four, and that is an LCE score of 3.7. Crucified, rugged, handsome gunfighters with fratricidal tendencies out of five for 1976's Kioma. That was a doozy of a movie. And our second spaghetti western film on the show. I hope to pick another one next season. I think I already have actually, but we're not going to talk about that right now. But what yeah, we will wait. Yes, but what we will talk about is next week's episode. So next week we have Brody. We have Resurrection from Russell Mulcahy to be a fucking fun episode. That's for goddamn sure. We haven't done a Russell Mulcahy film since Razorback. Razorback. Yeah, mm. that's the one. So yeah, it's good to see him cre- uh, bring those creative muscles to the table especially um now that he's a well during the 90s a big time hollywood director so this has lambert in it right yes it has and a little cameo by the one and only mr cronenberg Ooh. oh all right yeah. Mulkey really loves lambert doesn't he yeah he fucking froths him i don't know why <laughs> but maybe the highlander yeah just fucking, a little bit <laughs> yeah Fucking A. Well, I can't wait to talk about Russell Mulcahy's resurrection next week. But until then, this is the pod boss, TJ Bowser, signing off. This is your doppelganger, Kanga Banger, all the way from down under saying, I'll catch your mother lickers next week. Slick Nick saying, have a good one. See y'all next week. Signing off. studied in Korea, martial arts in Korea. So it was very huh. strange. Huh. <laughs> he went by the name Winterhawk. <laughs> went by Winterhawk. All right. Well, you're actually being like serious. Korea. Yes, I'm being serious. I studied Taekwondo for six years of my life, and my master was oh, I, Master Winterhawk. What the fuck? I wasn't joking about that. That's, that's something I don't talk about a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Why? I'd be like, I'd be like fucking dead, pride in that shit. I've been talking to Sarah about going back and like doing that stuff again and then having that part of my life, but it was just such a strange time. You gotta find your master. You gotta find Master Winterhawk <laughs> at the top of the mountain and get your mojo back. <laughs> Out of your sensei.